Now we're going to open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. And as you do that, please arise, that in doing so we might express our reverence for God's written word visibly. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that grass will wither, flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So the people of God strive to hear and heed it faithfully together. This morning, we hear God's word from Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord, your word is beautiful. It paints a remarkable picture of the people of God and how much more importantly, the God of his people. And we ask now that you help us to look to you in the ministry of your word, that you'd bless not only the reading, but especially the preaching of your word, that faith would be worked in our hearts, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would receive glory and honor from the church. It's in the good name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
Today we're going to consider the question, how do the people of God endure opposition? With what shall we respond? Years ago, I had the privilege of studying over in the Netherlands, uh, which was a real blessing for me for a number of reasons, not simply the work that I got to do in a university studying old books on preaching, and at least for a nerd like me, that was a really good time. Uh, but driving around the Netherlands was, was very impressive to me, especially as I imagined not simply the place, the way that I saw it, but the way that it might have been during the time of World War II. And one trip, I drove northward towards a city called Groningen, for those of you that care about pronunciation. Uh, and there, outside in a field, outside of a city, kind of quiet, almost a little bit sleepy, painted on the side of the barn were these Latin words, ora et labor, pray and work. And if you think about those words, ora et labor, pray and work, in the context when there's not a war, it would seem to imply uh, that we ought to be prayerful in our regular daily labors. But if you think about it, in times of war, prayer and work are exactly how the people of God ought to endure their opposition. Today, in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see the people of God engaging exactly that. And in many ways, as I prayed, Nehemiah 4 paints a remarkable picture of the people of God at work, but far more importantly, the God of his people at work in the midst of his people during times of opposition. In some ways, it is a very sobering portrait of the opposition that the people of God uh, endure at times. In fact, in this one chapter, you see something of a pattern that almost doubles the outline that you have in the bulletin because you see opposition, you see prayer, and you see an answer to that prayer, and then you see those things again, opposition mounting, another brief prayer, and the people of God at work in answer to Nehemiah's prayer. There's a sober picture to be sure in front of us, but whenever you see the people of God being opposed, we recognize that this is a difficult thing and in some ways a difficult question, because after all, aren't the people of God on the right side of things? And why is it that the people of God sometimes endure opposition, sometimes endure persecution? Well, these are hard questions, but in some ways our text today will help us to see that. And it does so by showing us a continuing drama, the drama between Nehemiah as he attempts to rebuild the city with the help of the Israelites and those who are opposed to the work of rebuilding that city, uh, the opposition is described here in our chapter. A new cast of characters is added. We begin with two names, Sanballat and Tobiah. I really appreciate one of our members mentioning yesterday while attempting to pronounce four names that these can be a little bit tricky. Thankfully, these two names are kind of easy. Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, one from Samaria, the area going towards uh, Philistia or the Philistine plain, and another named Tobiah, an Ammonite. Uh, these are Gentile peoples that at that time were set against Israel, set against the people of God, if you will, people that were outside of Israel's religion and therefore opposed to God himself, not simply the people, and they're angry. They're angry because Israel is rebuilding its city. They're angry because the people of God are doing what they were told to do. They are greatly angered uh, and they are jeering. The posture is not one of indifference, not simply like not into it. They're actually offended by it and set against it. Their anger in some ways is red hot. Israel is rebuilding its city. The people of God are returning to the work that God has called them to do. 
God is accomplishing his purposes. And Sanballat's anger goes from red hot to white hot. This Gentile official who is nearby, his anger is embodied in a form of jeering, which is a word that we don't use, but it's verbal mockery. It's like uh, when, you, when you use a negative, chiding voice to tell somebody that they can't do something, that they're incapable to accomplish their plan. When you belittle them, it's kind of like using words to hold somebody's head down, pushing them, as it were, underwater. He and this man named Tobias collectively jeer at the people of God. And they do so with with basically five questions that are listed there uh, early in the chapter. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive these stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Every question is an insult. Look at these feeble Jews. Look at this weak people. I mean, after all, who do they think they are? They're a slave people. They're a captive people that have been exiled away. And now here they are attempting to rebuild this city, this feeble-looking, weak people. Have you ever been made to feel small and weak? Will they restore their wall? Will they refurbish their defenses? Do they really think that they can protect themselves? Do they really think that they can save themselves? Do they really think that they can accomplish their mission? Will they sacrifice? Even here, do they believe that they are actually going to return to worshiping God according to his ways and according to his word? Do they actually think that they are going to return to the favor of God and that God is going to receive their sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Even this underscores the fact that Israel's working as though in a hurry. They sense the pressure that is upon them. They're not taking days off. They're not slowing down, if you will. They're accomplishing this task to the best of their abilities in the quickest possible way. And here, Sanballat and Tobias mock them. Will you finish in a day? The fifth jeer, in some ways, is the most uh, provocative. Will they revive these stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Will these dead stones come back to life? Can they actually rebuild that which sin and depravity have torn down. They mock not simply the people, they mock the materials of the wall itself. They mock the strength of the wall. They refer to it as rubbish and burnt down stones. And then they add a cute little quip at the end when Tobias comments on this and says, what will they do? After all these things, the strength of this wall is so weak that even if a fox were to walk upon it, it would crumble. It's a weak wall. And the people of God are being mocked. If you're f- familiar with that really wonderful series, Veggie Tales, it's hard to not imagine the French peas sitting up top, <laughs> mocking and mocking and mocking. Except for here, it's the opposite. It's Israel who's on the wall, and it's those outside who are mocking There's a phrase we sometimes use. It's a very unhelpful one, uh, but all of you know it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. How many times have you heard that phrase? Is it a true phrase? Of course not. It's a really foolish phrase. Uh, Sticks and stones do indeed break bones, but arguably words can be even more hurtful. Uh, To my embarrassment, I have to admit that when I was younger, thankfully in my pre-Christian days, there were a couple of times when I got beat up. 
and I can barely remember the names of the people who beat me up physically. But there are those who have hurt me with words over the years, and I can't forget them. Sticks and stones arguably hurt less than the words that we sometimes endure from those who are trying to hurt us. And that's exactly what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 4 when we see Sanballat and Tobias turning against the people of Israel. But then we find in verse 4 something I want to drill down on. And I'm not going to drill down on every part of this chapter as much as I will uh, certain portions. But verses 4 and 5 show Israel's response, Nehemiah's response in particular to Sanballat and Tobiah. When he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. It raises a very interesting, and I'm going to say sensitive question. How should we pray for those who persecute us? And does Nehemiah offer here a model prayer? Especially if you juxtapose it to Matthew chapter 5 and what I said earlier by way of the words of Jesus. This prayer that is offered is helpful in a lot of ways, but it's also challenging. It is a prayer that God would hear the voice of his people. It is a prayer that God would help and protect his people for they're in a moment of great need. As Nehemiah says, uh, we are despised. But it's not simply a prayer that God would hear and a prayer that God would protect. It's a prayer that God would fight. It's a prayer that God would enter into the story, enter into the drama, almost as a man of war, turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. In many ways, it's sort of an eye for an eye sort of prayer. It's a prayer that what has happened to Israel would happen to them. That what they have spoke upon Israel, what they're seeking to do to Israel, uh, would be done to them instead. So it's not simply a prayer, if you will, for the people of God, but in many ways it is a prayer against the enemies of God. Not only does Nehemiah pray that God would turn their taunt back upon them and give them over to enemies that they might be plundered in the land where they are captives, he even elevates that prayer from the physical to the spiritual. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. It's almost as though Nehemiah is saying, do not forgive their sins. Now, I said this is a hard prayer. In many ways, uh, it is. I would not quickly argue that it is what we would suggest as a model prayer. We usually don't pray that way. Lord, be pleased to not forgive them. But Nehemiah does. Do not cover their guilt and, let, and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. Those are words that Israel often prays. Those are words that Moses prayed on behalf of the people of God, that God would indeed cover the guilt and the shame of his people, that God would not blot out his people, but rather blot out their sins from his sight, that they might abide in the presence of the Lord. Nehemiah's prayer arguably needs to be understood a couple ways. I'm going to slightly explain it away, and then I'm going to put it back on the table. I'm going to slightly explain it away and say uh, that we ought to be careful in the way that we pray, and that there is something unique about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and Israel's relationship to its enemies. A lot of things happen between the people of God 
and their enemies in the Old Testament that are not the norm for Christians today. We do not go into the land and drive out the inhabitants with physical sword. We do not put people to death the way that Israel at times did. And there are certain prayers that even attach to that military context uh, that seem to be fitting for that particular scene. In other words, this is a prayer not only in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, but during a time of war. And there's something uh, unique about it, and that needs to be understood. At the same time, we ought to note that God gives us what we call in the book of Psalms imprecatory prayers. There are times where you find the people of God not simply praying for their enemies, but even against their enemies. And in a certain sense, what Nehemiah is praying for is justice. That God would act justly. That those who are doing a great evil to the people of God would receive the justice that they deserve. And it is right. It is fitting to pray that God would act justly, that God would act swiftly, that God would not only hear and protect his people, but that God would fight for us. So it might not answer every question, but at least helps us to understand that Nehemiah offers a very unique prayer, ultimately asking for God to act justly on behalf of his people. And then after that prayer is offered, they return to the work. Verse 6, so we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now on the one hand, you might stop there and say, okay, we get to catch our breath. And wouldn't that be great? But one of the great things, very helpful, in my mind, pastorally helpful things, about uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, is you have the opposition, you have prayer, you have something of an answer to those prayers as the people uh, begin to do the work of building the wall again, but then the opposition mounts. And it, it raises an interesting point, why doesn't God simply remove all the enemies of God and end the story there? You ever prayed that way? Uh, why is there still evil in the world? Why do we continue to experience opposition and difficulty? When will it end? Well, in a certain sense, the answer, at least in Nehemiah 4, is not yet. Because in verse 7, again, the enemies of God not only begin to conspire against the people of God, the list of names grows. It's not simply Sanballat and Tobiah, but now added to this, if you will, angry horde are the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites, commentaries looking at this chapter, just can't help themselves from referring to the Lord of the Rings. And neither can I. This is like that scene where you watch not simply one army coming against the good guys, right? Uh, but another army comes to this side to help the bad guys. And another army comes from that side to help the bad guys. And, and when we were once looking at one small army and thinking, okay, we can, maybe we can take them, now they're against us, and they're against us, and it looks like an overwhelming wave that cannot be endured. And again, you've felt that way at times. There are times where it seems not simply that we have a foe, but foes. There are times when it seems that there's not simply a little bit of opposition against us, but a great wave, far too much for us to be able to bear. And when these see that <clears throat> when these people come together, Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites, uh, again, uh, we sense they're not, they're not only together, but they're very angry. At the end of verse 7, they notice that the walls of Jerusalem are being repaired, and they are very angry. It's as though their anger has moved from being red hot 
now to white hot. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. This is exactly how opposition works. This is exactly, in a certain sense, how our great enemy works. Not simply coming against us, uh, full forward, straight in front of our faces, but sowing seeds of confusion and doubt. And arguably, some of the things that are seen here, experienced by Nehemiah, are, are deeply punctuated points of confusion and doubt. For the opposition that comes against him at this point in the middle of the chapter is not simply from the enemies of God, but even from the people of God. And you'll see what I mean as we continue to walk through it. The people became very angry. The enemies of God, they seek to fight and to add confusion. And then you notice uh, very briefly, Nehemiah prays. One prayer was long and extended, and, and the words of it are offered in clear detail. The other is only referred to as though briefly he prayed and then sets a guard by day and by night to protect the people of God. But notice what happens there. It's not simply the enemies of God who have mounted against Nehemiah and the work of the wall. Uh, now a reference is made in verse 10 to Judah. And this is the part of the chapter that almost bothers me the most. They say, friendly fire hurts the worst. And arguably, it's quite true. If Nehemiah looks one direction, and there he sees Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites in front of him, if you will, like a military army uh, marching against him, Judah is behind. The city walls separate the Gentile armies out there, and Judah is behind. But notice what it is that the people in Judah uh, have to say, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This is the nagging voice of doubt. It's almost as though the people in Judah were saying the same thing as the enemies of Judah. We can't do this. There's no way we can win. Look at us. We're small. We're feeble. We're weary. We're outgunned. We're outnumbered. We're tired. There's no way we can do this. The burden is too great. Quick insertion, the voice of the enemies in verse 11. And the enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. It's almost as though Nehemiah is in a ring, but there are several foes against him. He's got the enemies of the people of God, and he's got the nagging, doubting people of God punching him at the same time. He looks this way, he takes a punch. He looks the other way, he takes a punch. He falls backwards, they pull the chair out from underneath him. At that time, verse 12, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and I love the way this is put, and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Now you know in the, in the Hebrew way of using numbers, ten is a way of saying completeness or fullness. It, they arguably said it not only 10 times, maybe even more. It's like saying they wouldn't shut up. Have you ever had someone who's just kind of nagging at you? I should be careful here. Who's just kind of nagging at you and just won't let it go? Never seem, don't look next to one another. This is not a good time for that. But that's exactly what is happening here. Israel comes from behind and says, we don't have this. We aren't going to win this. This is what they say to Nehemiah. Uh, you must return to us. What do they mean by that? Stop building. Why? Because if you stop building, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites will all go away. It's a call for retreat. It's a call for surrender. And there are times 
when the people of God have great faith and they rise to the occasion and they stand in the gap and they're bold for the things of God and then there's the other 99% of the time. When the people of God see danger and they run, when they experience opposition and they flee, Israel here, on the one hand, uses the voice of wisdom, but the voice of wisdom is not always the voice of faith. Wisdom says we're outnumbered, outmanned, we should give up, turn back, we should flee. Faith says we should stand in the gap, we should do what God has said in his word, we should trust him and walk by faith and not by sight. But ten times Israel said, you must return to us. How did Nehemiah respond? This is great. He's got uh, these five collective peoples ahead of him. Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites. He's got the Israelites behind him saying, we don't have this. You should simply give it up and go home. But notice what he does in verse 13, almost unflinchingly. There's not even mention of another prayer here. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, and this is great, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. The society wants to be cautious in using Bible characters uh, simply as portraits of leadership and things like that. But at the end of the day, you can't miss the fact that Nehemiah emerges in chapter 4 here as a wonderful leader. He has overwhelming odds against him. He has a daunting army standing in front of him, seeking to undo him, seeking to cause confusion and doubt for the people of God. And then there are the people of God that aren't much help. He said we should bail. We should just go home. And Nehemiah, rather than turning back, he turns up. And this is really the way that the people of God are called to engage opposition. He turns up. He doesn't simply see the opposition or the failing faith of the people of God behind him. Rather, he says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Isn't that beautiful language? Do not be afraid. How many times do you see stages just like this in the Bible where the people of God are here and a much larger army is in front of them. And there's one person that almost stands out against all odds who's not afraid. Or a small remnant that stands out against all odds that is not afraid. And this beautiful language of fear not, do not be afraid, this gentle command is given. But then eyes are turned to the Lord. Remember the Lord. The language of remembering, beautiful covenant language. God so often remembering his people because of his covenant. The people of God so often remembering God and all that he has done as he has kept his covenant promises. Remember the Lord. And who is the Lord who now Nehemiah calls upon? He is the one who is great and awesome. The same word for great is used to describe uh, the mounting opposition against them. There is a great foe, but we have a greater God. There is a sense in which uh, that army against us is awesome. In the sense of being terrible and inspires fear, but God is even bigger. Nehemiah doesn't downplay the reality. He doesn't pretend as though there's no opposition. He doesn't pretend as though the odds don't look that great. He gets it. Again, it reminds me of a scene from Lord of the Rings where Gimli and Legolas are contemplating their odds at Helm's Deep. 
And one says to the other, they're not soldiers, they're farmers, farriers, and stable keepers. Many of them have seen far too few winters. And then Laylaw says, and the others have seen far too many. This is not looking good for Israel. But is God daunted? Is God confused? Is God overwhelmed? The answer, of course, is no. And that is why Nehemiah says, not simply do not be afraid, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Uh, He then gives this beautiful language. It, it, It really is a scene like out of a movie where you can almost hear him, almost see him sitting on a horse, even if he wasn't, uh, looking at his people and their eyes are kind of shaky. When he says to them, not only do not be afraid, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, but then goes on to say, and fight, fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your homes. I can picture a small four-year-old female running around my backyard with a pretend sword in hand, chasing her friends, saying, For Narnia! (laughs) And that's exactly what we see here at a far greater scale. But not for Narnia. For the people of God. For the family of God. For the city of God. That's what Nehemiah holds out before the people. It's all on the line here. It's all on the line. Lose this battle. Lose this city You lose your homes, your wives, your daughters, your sons, your brothers, your lives. Nehemiah does emerge as a great leader. Once again, the opposition has not only mounted, but rose. Ever so briefly, he offers not simply a prayer, but he directs the attention of the people of God to the God of those people. And then finally, we see this answer to his prayer, so to speak, when the work resumes and they begin uh, to labor First, we see Nehemiah frustrated, excuse me, God frustrating the plan of the enemies. And the people of God get back to work. They all return to each, each to his work. And there's this beautiful, extensive description. From that day, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears. The work for servant there is actually uh, a word for like young men, uh, almost uh, boys that have not quite reached puberty. They're servants, but they're boys. What's the point? Israel's all in. Everybody's involved here, young and old. There really are some here who have not seen very many winters, standing beside those who have seen far too many winters. And they carried on the work. They carried on the work. They carried on the construction as they hold spears, shields, bows, coats of mail, half of them doing the work of construction, half of them standing there like an army waiting to engage the battle, burdens loaded in such a way that they labored with one hand holding a spear, with the other hand holding a trowel. You get that beautiful picture that summarizes the book of Nehemiah, sword in one hand, trowel in the other. This is what you see in the people of God. It's a beautiful portrait of the people of God. Standing beside Nehemiah is the man holding the trumpet. Because why? Because the work of the people spreads them out in such a way that they're vulnerable. There are gaps, if you will, in their military line, just as there are gaps in the wall itself. And so a plan is laid out in verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. And so they worked. This is the way that it goes on. It spans time. Half of them holding spears from the break of dawn until the stars come out. Usually work would begin early morning and end 
at the beginning of dusk, but here they extend even into the late night of the hours when the stars come out. And then finally, Nehemiah said to the people, let every man and his servant, that is his little boy, pass the night with Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. You don't simply see that they're all in. You see that they stay in. This is a long and perpetual battle. And in a certain sense, the chapter ends, be careful, be with me here, because this is important. In a certain sense, the chapter ends unresolved. The chapter ends with Nehemiah and the people of God armed for battle, not even taking off their clothes, and at the same time, building the city walls, doing construction while dawn for combat. That is a beautiful portrait of the church. And Nehemiah 4 is a beautiful depiction of the church. How is that? Let's make sure we understand it clearly. Every story in the Bible is part of a bigger story. And just as much as Nehemiah chapter 4 is a part of the book of Nehemiah and must be stood in that way, in many ways what we see here is a portrait of the plan of God, the people of God, and the enemies of God. Nehemiah 4 is not simply about Sanballat and Tobias, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites opposing Israel. It's not that small. This is a much bigger battlefield and a much larger story. Why? Because there's always been opposition to the people and plan of God. In a certain sense, what you see in Nehemiah not only is nothing new, in a certain sense, it's present today. From the very beginning of the Bible, God introduced a plan for his people. And from the very beginning of that plan's introduction into the world, there have been those who've been set against it. Sinbal and Tobias and the others represent a league, a dark league that stands against the people of God and stands against the God of his people. And it's always been that way since the dawn of time. In the very same way that Sinbal and Tobias and the enemies of God attempt to undo the people of God in Nehemiah 4 is the same way that Satan has always worked. Not simply with frontal attack, but bringing in as well confusion and discouragement. And if I were to ask again, uh, what is it that most greatly hinders the progress of the people of God? What is it that most greatly frustrates us and causes us to back up and retreat? Uh, It's not simply the opposition that we experience from enemies At times, it is often friendly fire. One could easily argue that it was not the words of Sambalat and Tobias that got into Nehemiah's head the most. Arguably, it's what Judah had to say in verse 10. Give it up. Just quit. Surrender. Go home. Friendly fire truly hurts the worst. So who emerges then as the great hero of the story? Well, in a certain sense, yes, it is Nehemiah. This is a fantastic portrait of leadership, a fantastic depiction of grace under pressure, a fantastic way of showing how the people of God and this man of God walk not by sight, but ultimately by faith. But there's a question that the enemies of God ask. It's a very important question. Can this city be revived? Can this people be restored? Can they be saved? Is there ultimately any hope? 
And the answer is yes. But the answer is yes, not because ultimately Nehemiah is a great man of faith. And the answer is yes, not because Israel will stand there night and day building the wall while holding both sword and trowel. The answer is found not in the greatness of Nehemiah or in the greatness of Israel, but in the greatness of the God who fights for us, just as Nehemiah said. Israel was right to continue fighting. Nehemiah was right to continue fighting and building, but only because God was on their side. He is the Lord who is great and awesome, and he is the one who fights on behalf of his people. When Jesus came into the world, did he experience a warm reception or great opposition? And the answer is great opposition. As he made his way throughout his pilgrim path, he experienced not only opposition, arguably the hardest things that he endures was not what Satan threw at him, but friendly fire. The often wayward, doubting, frustrating, discouraging people of God when Jesus made some of his finest speeches, where were the disciples? Standing right there saying, yeah, but that's not going to happen. How many times did he have to rebuke the disciples for their weak and wavering faith? And how many times did the people of God see him do wonderful, remarkable things and yet continue to doubt? Nehemiah 4 paints a picture of the people of God continuing to experience opposition and yet God showing himself faithful over and over and over. Why? Because that is the plan of God. Jesus has a plan that does involve not simply hearing our prayers and protecting our bodies, but ultimately saving and reviving us. He is the great promise giver. He is the great promise keeper. He is the far better planner than Nehemiah. And he is the one who is able to accomplish all his holy will. And ultimately, the people of God are saved through the death and the resurrection of Jesus when he is revived. We are saved. Because of his life, we have eternal life. And yet, where does this leave us? Well, in many sense, it leaves us exactly where we find Israel at the end of Nehemiah 4, holding a sword and a trowel. On the one hand, constantly striving to build up the body of Christ. Is that not where we are? And at the very same time, recognizing that we live in a world that's exactly as Jesus described it full of opposition, and sometimes friendly fire hurts the worse. But in many ways, it's very sober, honest, and helpful to recognize that as one hymn puts it, the battle is not done. How goes it with the Christian life? The battle is not done. How goes it in the church? The battle is not done. So what is our hope? Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. One of the things I want to end on this note, one of the things that greatly, greatly, greatly encourages me as a pastor is things like yesterday. When you see the people of God, young and old, and and to my great encouragement, seeing that some of the best talent in the church is among those who've seen far too few winters. (laughs) And yet there you see the people of God, on the one hand, building up one another, and at the same time, opposing the evil one. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I was thinking about it yesterday. I wonder if you have two. How much does Satan hate the church? And if he hates the church, how much does he hate things like church planting? Is it really just Sanballat, Tobias, 
the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites that oppose the building up of the city of God? No, Satan opposes the work of the church, and therefore the people stand holding sword and trowel in hand, and they hear these words Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Because God is in our midst. His city shall not perish. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you that you are indeed the God who fights for his people. We confess and acknowledge, O Lord, that as your people... We truly do have many who oppose us. And at times it seems that those enemies are all around, that we are surrounded like the people of God were surrounded. 41 stations, if counted correctly, where the people were working and enemies on every side, seeking to undo them, seeking to attack them, seeking to confuse them. At times, O oh Lord, your church can feel the same way. We, we feel outnumbered. We feel overwhelmed. We get tired. We get discouraged. And it's there, Lord, we ask that you give us uh, voices like we hear in Nehemiah, but even more the voice of our shepherd telling us to not be afraid, to remember that you are the Lord, that you are with us, that you are great and awesome, that all of our foes counted together are not stronger than you. And therefore, with the Lord on our side, what can man do to us? We shall not be afraid. Outside that city in the Netherlands on a barn wall, read the words, prayer and work. And we ask, Lord, that we would be about these very same things. As we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, the people of God praying together and working together. We ask that you would help us in our hearts, in our lives, and our ways to commit to these things and to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord Jesus our work is not in vain because he finished his great work, died and rose again, and because of his life-giving spirit, we shall make it to the very end. Help us to remember these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.